Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 19 through 30. This is our Joy to the World series. Joy in Futility is the title of this weekend's message. Jesus coming to this earth was good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. To the degree that you understand the good news part of his coming to this earth is to the degree that you'll experience this unspeakable, glorious joy as a result of his coming to this earth. Paul's letter to the church in Philippi teaches us how we can have this good news of great joy in every context of life, regardless of what's going on in our lives. Regardless of the people, things, and circumstances of our lives, we can have this good news of great joy in every part of our lives. Philippians 4.4 is the key verse. You guys remember it? Let's see if we can say it together. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's a key verse to the whole letter, not a big letter, four chapters. But rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. What is he saying by that? Make Jesus the delight of your life, always, 24-7. We've been using some, a uh, couple different definitions, working definitions for joy. One definition we've been using is, a, joy is a deep, durable delight in the beauty, glory, splendor of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And then it doesn't stop there, that ruins us for anything else. It ruins us for anything else. If you have him, uh, really, everything else is, is somewhat inconsequential. I mean, there are things that certainly happen to our lives, and it does bring sorrow. There's no doubt about it. But it doesn't bring despair. Because as we've been de defining throughout that joy, the opposite of joy is not sorrow. The opposite of, of joy would be despair or hopelessness. The counterfeit for joy is elation in the gifts rather than the gift giver. Another definition we've been using for this joy is that it is a buoyancy in our life. Joy is a buoyancy. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, so it's a buoyancy. Can life push you down? Absolutely, but it can't keep you down if you have the joy of the Lord. And it's a buoyancy in your life that keeps you coming back up to the surface regardless of how bad life beats you down. And this buoyancy is based on the pleasures you find in the eternal privileges that the Lord Jesus Christ has provided for us. And we access that by putting our faith in the personal work of Jesus Christ. There's a, one of my favorite movies is Braveheart. Any fans of Braveheart out there? Ooh, it's a good one. It's one of those you just kind of like watching over and over again. But there's the very last scene of the movie where William Wallace, being played by Mel Gibson, uh, he is uh, going to be executed, and his little sweet, uh, this, I guess it was, uh, she was actually the, the, the daughter-in-law of the king who's on his deathbed. And uh, she comes in and pleads with him, appeals to him to, to stay his execution. He could stay his execution if he renounces his defiance against England. And he, he, he really uh, gives all of Scotland a vision to go up against their... Uh, the offensiveness of all of England, and she's saying, man, if you'll just uh, denounce that, you can stay your execution. And he makes a very powerful statement, and he says this, every man dies, but not every man truly lives. Every man dies. Everyone here is going to die. 
But are you truly living? He says, there's no way. I can't, I can't denounce these convictions I have. They have gone from village to village, the English, and pillaged and raped our women. And, we, and I will defiantly stand up against them even to my very death. And he dies. And it's, I had a chance when we were in Scotland to visit the monument uh, to William Wallace. Pretty cool place. And uh, McClanic Thans uh, took us there and had a lot of fun there. But it's really interesting and a pretty powerful statement. Every man dies, but not every man truly lives. So my question for you this morning, are you truly living? Do you know what life is all about? Are you experiencing fullness of life? that can only ultimately be found in Jesus Christ. Everyone here is living life on one of three different levels. You're either living a life of survival, which is just, just make it. If I can just make it through the holidays, if I can just make it to next weekend, if I can make it to a brand new year, that's survival. The next level would be success. Make it big. Big car, big home, big paycheck. And that's where most of Americans live, either in survival or success. There's another level to, that we can live in. It's called significance. That you and I were created by God, for God, to give glory to God, to live our lives. This is the only place where we can live a life that is, that is truly... Uh, Rick Warren, a number of years ago, coined this phrase, purpose-driven life. And about 10 years ago, we went through that book. But I prefer to call it a gospel-driven life. That when you understand the gospel and you begin to respond to all that Jesus Christ is, you begin to live a life of significance unlike any other life. John 10.10, 10, first part of that, it says, The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. This is uh, Jesus' words. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the what? Fullest. To the fullest. There's absolutely not a better life on this planet earth than the life that is a byproduct of full devotion to Jesus Christ. Let me say that again because I don't really think that we, we oftentimes find ourselves living lives of survival or, or success. We get caught up in all that's around us, but there's only one life that is fullness of life and it comes as a byproduct of a life that is fully devoted to Jesus Christ, a life of significance. In our text here today, Paul uses two men as examples of the kind of people who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and are living lives of significance. You'll notice... On your notes, Timothy, he says in verse 20, he says, I have no one like him. And then Epaphroditus, he says in verse 29, so receive him with all joy and honor such men. So we're going to be looking at their, their lives, these two men's lives, and how they are living lives of fullness as a result of their full devotion to Jesus Christ, taking them from futility to fullness of life that only can be found in Jesus Christ. That's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's go before the throne of grace one more time before we study our text and invite God's presence. God, we are delighted to be here today. We are thank thankful that you are here to meet with us. We have come today to encounter you, to know you, to experience you in our lives. God, teach us what it means to be fully devoted to you. Your word tells us, you told us, that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And we see that all around us. And yet you invaded our pathetic plight with your presence, your peace, your power, so that we could get beyond just survival and even success as defined by, by our American culture, but we could truly live a life of significance. Teach us what that means. Show us the kind of people that the gospel produces so that we can become more fully devoted to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said... 
Amen. Take a look at Philippians 2, 19 through 30. We're going to look at the kind of people the gospel produces. This is kind of a refresher. We're going to be looking at the five G's. It's really our mission statement here at Desert Breeze is that we're here to help unchurched people become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we walk you uh, through each of these five G's in our game of life. We'll be talking a little bit more about that. We've got our next classes coming up January the 18th. But let me read through the text starting at verse 19, chapter 2 of Philippians. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. The kind of people the gospel produces, as I stated, our mission statement is that we're here to help people, unchurched people, become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So the question would be, well, what is a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? If the byproduct is fullness of life, this life of significance, What does it mean to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Well, we've defined these five G's uh, that represent full devotion to Jesus Christ. What we're going to find in our text is that these five G's are implicit and explicit. The first two are implicit in in the fuller context of Scripture. So we're getting these first two from really the fuller context of Scripture as it relates to Timothy and Epaphroditus. And we we know that the last three of these five G's are explicit, and you can see them in the context of of our text here this morning. So full devotion to Jesus Christ, five G's, will take you from futility to fullness of life. Um, Pop quiz here. How many have gone through uh, the game of life? Show of hands. Wow. I... I always forget how many have gone through that, so quite a number. And if you haven't gone, that would be your next step here at Desert Breeze. Our next class will be offered uh, January the 18th. You can sign up now. Just put it on your communication card. Drop it in the box. We'll put your name down. Uh, but it's January the 18th, three weeks into the new year, uh, Game of Life. And we walk you through this. And so this is kind of a crash course in the, in, in the Game of Life and, and talking about these, this 5G process. And so you guys, all those that raised your hand, you'll know what the first G is. What's the first G? Yell it out. It's genuine. Yeah, first G is genuine. That's your first fill in the blank. You can write that down, genuine. So if indeed you are fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, here's the first step to it is that you'll be a genuine Christian. 
A genuine Christian is someone who's made a commitment to Christ and to the church family. We become what we're committed to, ultimately. When you understand what faith is all about, and you read the faith chapter, Hebrews 11, you begin to understand that faith is made up of, there's three words that I would describe faith, and you can see it in the text in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, is that it's made up of comprehension. You first comprehend something or understand something about the gospel, who Jesus is, what he's done for you. As you begin to understand that, and it goes from your head into your heart, it it begins to stir within you and it becomes conviction. There's a conviction about it, but it's not completed. It's not completed until there is commitment. There is some kind of commitment in your heart. In fact, if you are truly rejoicing in the Lord always, as Paul said, and again I say rejoice, if he is the treasure of your life, it will change everything about you. It will change the way you think, the way you feel, and even the way that you behave. The things that you value, you prioritize. The things you prioritize, you practice. And so when we're talking about this faith in Jesus Christ, we're looking at these five G's as really the extension of following Christ. As you have put your faith in him, you have encountered him, you know him. There's a conviction in your heart that stirs deep. And then you begin to say, hey, I'm I'm giving my life completely and totally to the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody that understands that the Savior, the God of the galaxies, the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth, when you look around at creation, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And when you begin to understand that and understand that he came to this earth, lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, It does something to you because there's no other belief system on this planet earth that even comes close to that truth. And and, and the understanding of that, that understanding leads to conviction that leads to a commitment. And that commitment is that you become a genuine Christian, commitment to Christ and to a church family. It's also known as fellowship. And you see this in both Timothy and Epaphroditus. They They are Christians committed to the church family of Philippi. Timothy, for instance, he helped Paul and Silas plant the church in Philippi. We talked about that when we kicked off this series, Acts 16. Epaphroditus, verse 25 of our text, uh, Paul refers to him as my brother. As a member of the church in Philippi, uh, he had brought their gift to Paul, had gotten sick, almost died, recovered from his illness, and was now returning to Philippi. And so we see in both of these, they were both committed to Christ and to a church family. Let me walk you through some verses just so that you can really understand what this commitment to Christ and to a church family is all about. You'll notice in the parentheses on your notes, I've given you a number of verses there. The best commentary for Scripture is always what? It's always Scripture. Yeah, you always go, you're going to find these truths somewhere in Scripture. So that's what I've done with this is I'm going to walk you through these. And I'll, I'll, you don't need to turn to these verses. Some of you probably already could recite most of them. In fact, let's, uh, let's recite uh, John 3.16 together. You guys ready? Some of you probably have memorized it. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What a powerful verse. I never get tired of hearing that verse any more than I get tired of hearing my wife tell me that she loves me and says that I am one hunk of a husband. Whoa. Tell me more, honey. Tell me more. I love it when she says those things to me. And, uh, 
And that's one of those verses, just, man, you just read it, and you just, ah, oh, you savor, you savor Jesus. For God's soul, he was so madly in love with us. I mean, do you understand his love for you? He so loved you so much. He is fond of you. He thinks the world of you. He can't take his eyes off of you. He loved you so much that he sent his son so that we wouldn't perish, but we could have eternal life. Not just a quantity of life, but a quality of life. But most of us know 316. Do you know 317? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He doesn't come with pointed fingers of accusation, but with open arms. His arms were nailed open for you and I. And that is amazing. That is amazing when we understand that. that. That begins to ravish our hearts and that becomes our response. That's why we want to become genuine Christians. That's why we make a commitment to him and to a church family. Because of his outrageous love for us. In fact, it tells us in John 1.12, the Apostle John talks about uh, this in the, in the 14th verse, verse. He says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. We were amazed by, by his beauty and glory. The word glory means weight, significance, importance. We, we had that sense of, he's basically saying, we were like, wow, this is unbelievable. This is amazing. And then uh, the writer there goes on and it says, whoever believes in him, whoever receives him, he gave the right to become children of God. And so we've got to make a decision. When we begin to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're moved to conviction, there needs to be a commitment. You can reason to a point of probability, but it takes commitment to lead to certainty. We often want to reason to certainty. It's not going to happen until you make a commitment. Until you make a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to begin to move into a realm of certainty of who He is and what He can do for your life. It's in this commitment stage that it moves from knowing, as I stated earlier, the Jonathan Edwards statement that it's one thing to know that honey is sweet. It's another thing to taste the sweetness on your tongue. It's one thing to know that God loves you. It's another thing to experience the sweetness on your life of how much He loves you as it begins to transform your life, as you, as you receive Him, as you believe in Him, as you follow Him. It tells us in uh, John, 1 John 3, 1, you guys know this is another one of my many favorites. So this is what begins to take place as a genuine Christian, is that the Apostle John writes, for you know, how's that verse go? It is one of my favorites, I just can't remember it right now. Uh, how great, that's how it goes, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. I love that word lavish because this is that time of the year when my wife makes those sweet rolls. And uh, I love it. She makes those sweet rolls and then she lavishes them. And I'm the taster, tester, taster, tester. That's me. Yes, thank you very much. Ooh, that's a bad batch. I'm going to have to eat the whole batch all by myself. But there's this lavishing of his love. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And then Acts 2, 41 through 47 talks about that first century church 
Peter gets up. Remember Peter, the guy that denied Jesus three times? <laughs> he gets up after the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they, they receive this power. He gets up and proclaims the gospel. And there are, listen to me, 3,000 people who confess faith in Jesus. And so guess what they do immediately? They baptize him. They dunk him. And then it says in verse 42 of chapter 2, it says, and it says that, they were, that they were consistently diligent in, in four things. The apostles' teaching, which would be Bible study, in fellowship, hanging out with other Christians, uh, breaking of bread, which would be communion and sharing their lives to one another, and then prayer. They were committed to these things. And so being a genuine Christian is someone who's made a commitment to Christ and to a church family, and then you make that public through water baptism. Our next big baptism party will be in March the 13th. We're going to do another outdoor a baptism party, and you can sign up now if you'd like, but that's when you make that public to the world, to this church group, and you invite your family and friends to that. And so that's a genuine Christian. Have you made a commitment of your life to Jesus? Are you committed to a local church family like Desert Breeze? And have you made that public through water baptism? Now, if you're truly a genuine Christian, you'll move to the next stage, which is, yell it out to me, it is a growing Christian a growing Christian. And that's someone who's committed to the spiritual disciplines. The word for that would be discipleship. <clears throat> Timothy is being mentored. We know that he's a growing Christian because he's being mentored by Paul, involved in ministry. And uh, verse 22, it says, But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. We also know that there's a couple letters written specifically to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. Epaphroditus, Paul refers to him in verse 25 as a fellow soldier, which literally means an associate in the labors in conflicts for the cause of Christ. Now, as I thought about this, I thought about the congregation in Philippi wouldn't have sent him with the resources that they sent him with to minister to the apostle Paul if he had been immature, lethargic believer. They wouldn't have been able to trust him. But it was evident that Epaphroditus had been growing and they sent him on this mission to minister to the Apostle Paul while he was in prison, actually chained to a Praetorian guard under house arrest. So we see in the lives of both Timothy and Epaphroditus, they have this growing aspect, commitment to the spiritual disciplines. Let's go through these cross-references so that we can understand this more clearly. It says in 2 Peter 3.18, it says, Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's, Paul, Paul is, it's one of the most profound books that Paul has ever written is, is to the church in Rome. And it's very doctrinally based, but he spends the first 11 chapters just exploring the grace and the mercies of God. And then he hits chapter 12, and he says, Now, because of the phenomenal mercies of God, man, if you understand all the mercies of God and the grace of God, I appeal to you. Give your body, your whole life, as a living sacrifice to God. And then he goes on, verse 2, and he says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be trans transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the renewing of your mind. So how does our mind become renewed so that we are not shaped like this world? There should be a distinctiveness to your life. 
that in your following of the Lord Jesus Christ, the way that you live out your life, there should be some major differences, and those differences come as a result of this renewing process. And that comes as a result of spiritual disciplines. What are some spiritual disciplines? Yell them out to me. Prayer? Study God's Word? Fellowship? Yeah. Tithing? Praise God. Yeah, that's a good one. That has, that's actually a spiritual discipline. So it's these spiritual disciplines that help us to grow. Spiritual dif- disciplines are those things that uh, increase our capacity to experience more of God in our lives. One of the things that we say here is that life change happens best in, in small groups. We always say that this weekend service is the catalyst for life change, but if you really want life change, you get involved in a small group. That's where you're going to experience life change. You've heard us say this over the last three weeks, man. We've just gotten, gotten hit hard over the last three weeks. Scott just informed me, I, I told you, I think the last two weeks that we had eight deaths connected to our church family. We now have ten, ten deaths that are connected directly to our church family. So we have just been inundated. One of the, the deaths was one of our members who took his own life. And it was extremely devastating. And yet, i got to tell you this. He was a believer. He's with the Lord. And, uh, and you've got to know that it's by God's grace. Uh, if you can't earn it, you can't unearn it. Do you guys understand that? I know that Roman Catholicism uh, teaches actually something contrary to that, and it's, it's wrong because they don't understand the grace of God. But the reason why I share that with you is that... Uh, I saw our people and Celebrate Recovery step up and support this mom unlike I've ever seen in, in the secular world. I saw them rally her, and she even said to me, um, I even heard her say this, that when she was part of her previous church experience, when her f- husband passed away, no one called her. And she said that she has never seen such an outpouring of love and support as she has seen right here at Desert Bruce. That's amazing, isn't it? Let's praise God. Praise God. Praise God. They have rallied around her and supported her. So I just, I wanted to just be on record. That's why this whole idea of fellowship and growing and we desperately need one another. You can't do it on your own. You need the people that are sitting around you. And, and we see that happen up close and personal. I, and I see, the, I see a major difference between those that try to face death alone and those that face death with, with a community of people who love them and support them. So I have that front row seat. I see that happening all the time. We desperately need each other. It's in the context of community. And so we're not conformed to this world. We're transformed. And oh, by the way, there's a guy by the name of Dallas Willard who wrote a book on, uh, it's called The Great Omission talking about discipleship. He says a lot of churches in America today aren't really making disciples. They're just making converts. They're just attracting crowds. And we're about making, uh, making disciples here at Desert Breeze. We're not just about attracting crowds. And, um, and he said in that, he said that he called it the spiritual formation triangle. It's a golden triangle. And there's three characteristics. There's three sides to the triangle. Three characteristics that make up this spiritual transformation, this growing Christian. 
One of them is spiritual disciplines. The other one is the work of the Holy Spirit. Turn to the person next to you and tell them what you might think the third one is that God uses in our life to transform us. Real quick, do that. Okay, so you got, you got the work of the Holy Spirit, you got spiritual disciplines, and the third side of the triangle that God uses in our lives is what? Suffering. Suffering. Woo! Praise God. Bring it on. Because a lot of us are. That's what's happening in our lives currently. And you know what? It's, it's, it's fertile ground for God to do some wonderful things in our lives, to increase our joy in Him unlike we've ever experienced before. Would you guys agree with me that nowhere in this Bible does God promise us a painless or problem-free life? Would you agree with that? Not in this book. But this is what He's promised us in the midst of our problems and pain, His presence, His peace, and His power that would go beyond anything that we would face. And so we've got to grow. We need to grow. And as we begin to do that, Romans 8.28 says, For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So He takes all the mess of our lives and works it for our good. But what is our good? Romans 8.29, that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And then in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, we can begin to produce more of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So if you're a genuine Christian, you'll be a growing Christian. And if you're a growing Christian, then the overflow will be that you'll be a giving. What is it? Giving. A giving Christian. You will be a giving Christian. Commitment to using my shape, or three T's, to build up the church. This is ministry. You guys know what shape is? If you've gone through the game of life, you know what shape is. The S is for spiritual gift. H is for heart. A is for ability. P is for personalities. Not, not personalities. Personality. If you have more than one personality, we will, we will pray with you at the end of the service. Once in a while, I have more than one. And uh, E is for experiences, life experiences. Three T's are your time, talent, treasure. Time, talent, treasure to build the church. We see this in Timothy, verse 22. He has served with me in the gospel. There's no one like him, verse 20. That's what Paul says about Timothy. And Epaphroditus, he says, he's my fellow worker. So he was giving. Matthew 16, 13 through 19, as we try to understand this whole idea of giving, Jesus says something pretty powerful, very profound. He asked his disciples this question, who do people say that I am? If you were to ask that question today, this is what you would find, that the Mormon church says one thing about Jesus that's not accurate to the Bible. The Jehovah Witnesses would define Jesus in another way. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. The Muslims would say something else about Jesus. I mean, every religious group out there would say something about Jesus, and there would even be some confusion amongst Christianity on this broad spectrum, all the way from extreme liberalism to hyper-conservativism. And so he's asking that question. That's a valid question we must ask ourselves. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus? They go through this whole litany, this whole list of what people were saying during that day. And then he turns to them and he says, but who do you say I am? Probably the most profound thing that ever comes from the mouth of Peter before he was endued with power from on high after Acts uh, 1.8. Uh, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are God in the flesh. Can you imagine that, being with God in the flesh? 
You are God. You are God. You are the Son of God. And then Jesus says, you didn't come up with that on your own. You're not bright enough. None of you guys are bright enough. None of us are bright enough. He says, this is the work of my Father. When you begin to not just see Jesus, but are seized by him, you know that that's the work of the Father, the work of the Holy Spirit in you. And then Jesus goes on and says, based on this confession of faith, I will build my church. Those who confess me as the Messiah, Lord and Savior, those who are genuine, growing, giving, going, all to the glory of God, those that do that, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. You guys will be dispatched and you will kick down the gates of hell. You will take back territory that the enemy has taken. You will see people's lives set free. Amazing, amazing. And then he says, and I give you the keys of the kingdom. As a believer in Jesus Christ, do you understand your authority that you have in Jesus? Do you understand the power? Do you understand the delegated authority and responsibility that we have as the church? The greatest entity on this planet Earth for life change. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 basically says that my job is to equip you. I'm the administer, and you guys are the ministers. How many ministers do we have at Desert Breeze? However many people we have attend here that call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a minister. The minute you confessed faith in Jesus Christ, you became a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's something that when we all roll up our sleeves and get involved in ministry, and you have a primary ministry based on your shape, how God has shaped you. But there's also a secondary ministry based on wherever the need might be. But when we all get involved in ministry, he says something in Ephesians 4 that begins to take place. There's a phenomenal unity, but there's a greater level of intimacy with God, but also greater amount of maturity collectively that we are able to grow. And then therefore we are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. In other words, our lives become unshakable, unbreakable in direct proportion to our involvement in a local church like Desert Breeze. And as we are all getting involved, there's a, there's a strength, there's a dynamic of God's presence and power that you cannot experience on your own out there at Lake Pleasant fishing on Sunday mornings. Sounds like it might be fun, but, but sometimes I've heard people say, yeah, but I get closer to God all by myself. No, you don't. Not based on what the Bible teaches. There's a dynamic of God's power, presence, there's a unity, there's an intimacy, and there's a maturity that will be infused in your life that comes as a result of the work of the body of Christ as we work together and as we are giving Christians. Ephesians 2.10 says that each one of us, we are God's workmanship created unto Christ Jesus, created by Christ Jesus unto good works. The word workmanship, the, the Greek word is poema, where we get the word poetry, and it's the word of, of craftsmanship or work of art. You and I are God's work of art. We are his masterpiece. And he's talking about us individually, but also as us corporately. And it gives a whole new meaning to the phrase, you're a piece of work, doesn't it? You're a piece of work. You're a piece of work. Turn to the person next to him and say, you're a piece of work. You're a piece of work. 
In Jesus' name. Yeah. He's working in your life. So you are a masterpiece. We are a masterpiece. So when people come in, it's important that we relate to one another in such a way that it puts Christ on display, that they're attracted. They're attracted to the bride of Christ. Um, Matthew 25, 14 through 30 is the parable of the talents. And it talks about really in that that we will all give an account of our lives. Here's, here's what we, you need to understand is that your belief determines your eternal destination. Your belief in Jesus determines your eternal destination. Your behavior determines your eternal compensation. You will be eternally compensated for your behavior and how you lived out uh, and, and applied the talents that he has given you, your shape, spiritual gift, heart, ability, personality, experiences. And, and it's interesting because there was one that had one talent, one that had two talents, and one that had five talents. The one that had the one talent did what with the talent? They, they, he hid the talent because he was afraid. And the one that had the two and the one that had the five, they went out and multiplied it, and they, and they actually grew the talents. The one that had the two had four and the one that had the five had grown it to ten. And the one that had the two and the five, when the master came back, they heard, well done, good and faithful servant. But the one that had the one that hid it, what did he hear? And they're kind of frightening words, actually. He said, you wicked and lazy servant. My heart for you, everybody that attends Desert Breeze, is that when you, and you will, one of these days, you'll step from time into eternity, you'll take your last breath on earth, first breath in heaven, that you hear the words from your Lord and Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. That's my prayer for you. And that involves being a genuine, growing, giving. It takes us to the fourth one. What is it? Nice and loud. Going, going. Commitment to sharing Jesus Christ to the world around this is evangelism. Timothy, he's planting churches with Paul. Epaphroditus, we see this, supporting Paul's evangelistic efforts, verse 25 and 30. Matthew 28, last words of Jesus. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do everything that I've commanded you. He's giving us, that's called the Great Commission. In fact, five times we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then in the book of Acts we see the Great Commission. And as I stated, uh, Dallas Willard, he wrote the book, he called it the Great Omission. And I actually hear a lot of guys say, well, we're just here to make converts. No, you're not. You're here to make disciples. It's more than just getting people across the line. That's called abandonment, if that's all you're doing. It's called an abortion. But we are to not just make con converts, and, and he says baptizing, so he's saying conversion, making that public through water baptism, but teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you. So it's following what this book teaches us about Jesus and how we can follow him in every dimension of our lives, discipleship, being a follower of Jesus. And that's what he told us to do. That's the commandment that he's given us. Acts 1.8, it says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. The word for witness there is literally martyr. And I want you to think about this just for a minute. He says, You will be so filled up with my power and my presence and my peace that you will be willing to lay down your life for me. goes back to William Wallace. Every man lives, every man dies, but not every man truly lives. 
And it's only those that are really fully devoted to Jesus that are experiencing his power within them, that they're willing to lay down their life for the cause of Jesus Christ. Pretty amazing. And we see the early church, all of the disciples lay down their life for the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.15, it tells us that always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. The statement that we've talked about in the past, live your life in such a way that, it's, that people begin to ask questions about your life. Live lives worthy of, of questioning, worth asking questions about, but then give answers worth hearing. Tell people, and literally what that means, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason. The word reason is where we get the word apologetics. Apologia is the, is the Greek word. And so you give a reason, a defense, so it's important to not only know why you believe what you believe, but, um, but not only what you... Uh, no, I got that wrong, didn't I? Let me say it again. To not only know what you believe, but to know why you believe what you believe. Why do you believe it? And, and what you're going to find out, that I mean, the Christian faith is historical, it's evidential, it's factual. In fact, the more you dive into it, and the more that you taste the sweet honey of the Savior, the more you realize that it actually takes more faith to not believe, to believe something else, than it is to put your faith in Jesus. Everybody puts their faith in something or someone. Even atheists are putting their faith in some sort of a belief system. And what we discover and what we say as Christians is that we've, we've rolled up our sleeves, we've examined it, we've looked at the evidence, we've, we've encountered the Savior. And he's transformed our life. Once we were blind, but now we see. And he's continuing to change our lives. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 gives us two metaphors for what we are to be in this dark world. We are to be salt and light. So that we are to live our lives in such a way that we stir up greater uh, thirst, not salt in someone's wound. How many have ever had salt in, in a wound or something? Uh, Usually when I get wounded like that, Nancy tries to cry over my wound so that the salt can go into my wound and make it hurt for me. She does that. She is so... She needs Jesus. That's all there is to it. I'm kidding. She loves me a lot. She wouldn't do that. But uh, she hurts me in other ways. Um, but I'm not at liberty to tell you right now. Um, no, she loves me dearly. But, uh, but sometimes we come off and you see churches that they put salt in people's wounds. That's not what he's talking about, the salt. Salt is to create thirst. That we're drinking from this, this well of eternal life and we're going, oh, this is good stuff. And everybody's like, what? What's good stuff? What do you got there? What's happening? And you're just like, oh, this is good. You're just savoring the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're also not just to be salt, but light, not light in someone's eyes. My, my grandsons, um, the other night they were over, and uh, for some reason, Nancy gave them flashlights. Guess where they like to point those flashlights? Right in Grandpa's eyes. Grandpa can't see very well as it is, as I'm getting older. They're, they're laughing as Grandpa's falling down on the ground and rolling around. Shine it in Grandpa's eyes. And, and that's not what he's talking about with the light. We don't shine it in people's eyes. We shine it on the pathway. We shine it on Jesus. And he's glorified them. They begin to go, wow, we see, we see what you mean by that. We want him too. And so the first four, let's go through them. So you've got, first one is 
genuine, growing, giving, going. The fourth, fifth one, I'm sorry, is glorifying. Glorifying. Commitment to living my life for the glory of God. Commitment to living my life for the glory of God. This is worship. We see this in Timothy, verse 21, seeks the interests of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Paul says he's the one, he's really about the only one, one of the very few that seeks Jesus Christ's interest. Everyone else kind of seeks their own interest. Timothy, man, he wants what, what it's all about Jesus. It's not about Timothy. It's not about us making much of Timothy. It's about Timothy making much of God. And then Epaphroditus, verse 30, says, risking his life for the work of Christ. Risking his life for the work of Christ. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but annually there are a hundred and about 71,000 people worldwide who give their lives, they die for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so sheltered from that living here in America. Um, you can go to the Voice of the Martyrs, their website. Just do a Google search on Christianity, martyrs. Worldwide, people that are being martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty amazing. And that's what he's saying about Epaphroditus, risking his life for the work of Christ. Colossians 1.16 tells us that we were created by God for God. You were created for yourself. You didn't create yourself. You were created, and you are here on this planet Earth to put on display the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that we are here. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. The word glory, once again, is this weight, significance, importance. And I'm convinced that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. What he's saying is that, you know, and, and we, we celebrated my son Russell's 30th birthday. And uh, I was 12 when we had him. So, man, 30, that makes me, like, really old. Okay? Like 45, 42, 42 now. Yeah, I was 12. Yeah, that's right. Actually, I'm 54, but... Uh, but it's amazing how quick he's grown up, and I celebrated that. We celebrated that with him. It was a lot of fun. And I don't worship my son, Russell, but I worship God through my son, Russell. I thank God for my son and my grandsons and my beautiful wife and all that he has provided for me. But I worship God through those things. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I find incredible satisfaction with my family. Now, if God were to remove them or take them for one reason or another, I would be sorrowful but not in despair because my life is not about, it's, it's not about them. They're not, at, they're not the ultimate in my life. God is the ultimate. And, and I'm not, they're good, but they're not the ultimate in my life. And so that's what's important in understanding the glory of God, that we live for His glory. In fact, this is how we find satisfaction. I put it down here, Psalm 16, verses 2, 4, 8, 11. This is how you find satisfaction in him. The psalmist here says in Psalm 16, 2, he says this, Apart from you, God, I have no good thing. I, and, and I could say, you know, I have a wife, and, and, and that's, that's really good, but apart from God in my life, it's futile. It really is. But because he's at the center of our lives, we have a relationship that's um, unsurpassed by anyone who doesn't know Jesus. 
There, there is a pleasure that we find in one another, but it's through Jesus Christ. And we have to be careful not to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things more than the Creator. But the, but the writer there is saying, apart from you, I have no good thing. What he's saying is what C.S. Lewis said, is that the man who has everything with God has no more than the man who has God alone. He's basically saying what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. It's all meaningless apart from the fear of the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 4. He says, The sorrow of those will increase who run after other gods. So you begin to replace God with anything else and you're... Your sorrow is going to peg the meter. You're going to have all sorts of inordinate emotions. If you struggle with a lot of inordinate emotions, anger, envy, um, depression, I know there's chemical issues that can bring all those on, but I'm not talking about the chemical side of that. I'm just talking about the psychological part of having given your heart to anything other than Christ and having that other thing being threatened, blocked, or lost. It's going to create extreme anxiety, anger, depression, and then in Psalm 16:8 he says, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And then Psalm 16:11 he says, You have showed me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment, reflect on this. Where are you in this full devotion to Jesus Christ? Maybe you're here this morning, you've never even made a, a commitment to being a genuine Christian. That would be your first step. Maybe you're a genuine Christian, your next step is, is just growing, getting involved in a small group, beginning to practice the spiritual disciplines. Or maybe yours is, you're genuine and growing, you, just, you need to get involved, you need to start giving, you need to start participating, because there's unbelievable life in, in participating. Or maybe you're doing those first three, but it's this going. You just you feel uncomfortable sharing your faith with others, where you work, where you live. Just confess that to the to the Father this morning. My question for you as we prayerfully reflect on this, are you are you walking with God? Are you a genuine Christian? If not, just confess that and say, God, I want I want to give my life to you. I want to know you. I want to follow you. Are you living his word? Are you a growing Christian? Are you doing everything you can to get his word deep into your heart? Are you saturating your life with it? Are you contributing to his work? Are you giving? Giving of your time, your talent, your treasure? Are you involved here in Desert Breeze? Are you making an impact in this world? Are you, are you salt and are you light to those around you? And are you doing all of this out of a deep satisfaction in God? Do you understand that it's in him? He gives you, he shows you the path of life. He satisfies your deepest needs. God, help us to be fully devoted to you. We confess our, our exchanging of the truth of you for a lie, and we tend to worship created things more than we worship you. And so, God, we, we once again, we come to you as your arms are wide open for us to embrace us, to love us. God, transform our hearts so that we could be genuine, growing, giving, going all for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said...